Hey friends, I hope you're all staying as safe and healthy and comfortable as possible, and that you're taking care of all the people and pets that are important to you. We have a guest on today's show, and as such, I'm anticipating new listeners. So I'm figuring this opening monologue would be a good time to provide a short bio and tell you a bit about this podcast and myself. This show is called People Are the Enemy, and I am the host. My name is Andy Mascola. Hello! I've made at least one new episode of this program available for free every week since January 1st, 2018. For just over a year now, we've added a second 10-minute segment to each week's program that can be heard following my portion of the show. And that 10-minute segment is called Rachel's Chart Chat, which is produced and hosted by Rachel Hadaway, a.k.a. Rachel from Des Moines. Every week, Rachel picks two pop charts from the past, finds gems in them, and gives you some deep facts about the artists and the songs. During my segment, I like to talk with interesting, creative people. A lot of times, my portion of the episode will just be me talking with you, giving you slice-of-life stories, sharing funny and thoughtful audio clips I found floating around the internet, and trying my best to be very silly and entertaining, sometimes while I'm in the bathtub. There are no ads on People Are the Enemy. There is no Patreon set up for it. The only thing I've ever asked of listeners is if you love the show, and if you'd like to help support it and myself monetarily, and get yourself or the reader in your life some quality fiction, please consider purchasing any or all of my books. I'm the author of 10 self-published novels that are all currently available worldwide in both paperback and ebook formats via Amazon. And if you don't use Amazon, you can find all 10 of my titles in ebook format at Google Play. Just search my last name, M-A-S-C-O-L-A. That's how you'll find me on Google Play. If you've already purchased any or all of my books, thank you, thank you, thank you. I sincerely appreciate your generous patronage. And with all that out of the way, here's the quirky theme song. This is episode 270 of the People Are the Enemy podcast. My name is Andy Mascola. Thank you so much for checking out the show. I appreciate it. I appreciate you listening. Our guest is the film and TV documentary editor, music journalist, author, and podcast host, Mark Masters. For three decades, Mark has contributed writing features, interviews, and reviews to The Washington Post, Bandcamp, The Wire, Pitchfork, The Village Voice, and other publications. In 2007, Mark's book, No Wave, was released by Black Dog Publishing. Mark's forthcoming book, High Bias, The Distorted History of the Cassette Tape, is scheduled to be out in October of this year from UNC Press. Along with John Howard, Mark co-hosts The Spindle Podcast, a show about 7-inch records. Last month, Mark launched The Music Book Podcast, a show dedicated to celebrating Mark's love of books about music. 
On the podcast debut episode, Mark spoke with the author Matthew Goody about his 2022 book, Needles and Plastic, Flying Nun Records, 1981-1988. On the most recent episode of the Music Book Podcast, Mark spoke with John Lingan, the author of A Song for Everyone, the story of Creedence Clearwater Revival. Being a person who loves to read books about music and artist memoirs and biographies myself, I reached out to Mark and told him how much I was enjoying his new podcast and invited him on the show to talk with me today about his love of music books and his new show. And without any further ado, let's speak now with Mark Masters. Hello, Mark. Are you there? Yes, I am. Oh, Mark, Mark, you're obviously a busy person. I, I sincerely appreciate you making time to talk with me today. Oh, I'm so happy to talk to you. It's my, my pleasure. Oh, right on. Do you, do you like being busy, Mark? <laughs> I mean, there's times I like and there's times I don't, but most of the time I do. Yep. Yeah, I feel similarly. I, I like having a full day. It makes me feel good accomplishing things. Sure. Sure. Mark, do you remember the first music book, or if not the first, perhaps an early music book, or a, a book about a band or a music genre that you got as a younger person that gave you the music book bug? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I mean, uh, probably maybe the, maybe some of the Lester Bangs anthology, um, <clears throat> the anthology of his writing from various publications. One of the first music books I remember really enjoying, although... You know, it's more of a, a collection of essays and criticism than it is a music history book, but he has a lot of music history in there as well. So that's probably the first thing I, I remember that really made an impression on me. That that sounds pretty advanced for, like, a younger person. Oh, well, that was, like, this is probably in high school. <laughs> oh, okay, right on. Where did you tend to get your books when you were in high school? Were they mostly gifts, or did you buy them, or did you, you spend a lot of time at the library? Lots of time at the library, yeah. I was in a pretty relatively small town that didn't have a bookstore. I mean, I could drive a ways to get to a bookstore, but yeah, the li- I depended on the library for a lot of it, for sure. And we had a pretty decent library, and you know, I could request books, and the more I read about music, the more I'd ask for more books. And I was also a big sports fan back then, so I read a lot of sports books, but there's some similarities there, especially when, when, when it's about tracing history and stuff. So. Very, very cool. Yeah, I have to imagine, especially then, and you're, you're a fellow of a similar age as myself, Pre-internet, you had to find music books through recommendations or via music magazines, and you know, yes. yeah, for sure, for sure, you had to do some uh, some footwork there in order to track down the things that you really loved. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we <clears throat> the the best I could do to find music magazines was the library. Or I remember there was one Seven Eleven in town that would sometimes get Rolling Stone. Sometimes <laughs> get Rolling Stone. Wow, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's so cool. That's so cool. Mark, the authors that you spoke with on the first two episodes of the Music Book Podcast that I mentioned in my my introduction were both promoting works that came out within the last year. Will the podcast be covering new music books and their authors exclusively? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, that, that's going to be the bulk of it, at least as I get it started, just because there are so many good recent books that I want to talk to people about. But I do hope that I'll eventually go back a little further and... Uh, Either within the past, you know, more than just a year, within the past five to ten years, or even all the way back. I mean, it always depends on if, if I can find the author or if they're still around. But, but yeah, I definitely want to go into some more classic books and, and some more books, especially older books that don't get talked about as much anymore that, that I think people would really like if they could find out about them. So I, I, I'm open to all times, but I have a feeling it's going to be mostly new books because that's what I'm reading right now, basically. Right on, right on. Are you booking the guests yourself? I am, yep. Oh, that's yep, a lot just, of work on top of everything else. My goodness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, this is—it's funny. I, I, I didn't. I haven't really thought of this as any kind of a 
pro venture or anything. It's just I've been reading so many books. Number one, in researching my current book, and also just I have a lot of friends who who are you know colleagues from different websites. It seems like many of them are sort of bringing out their first or second books lately, and so I've just been reading so many. It's just and and having put my own together, it made me think about well, what do these people do to put theirs together? And it's just kind of an idea I had to talk to them. A couple of people I talked to before I even thought about having a podcast, and then it kind of occurred to me, well, maybe other people would like to hear these conversations too. So. For sure, for sure. One style of music book I, I really enjoy is the oral history format, where each paragraph is a different person speaking about the book's subject. Uh, obviously, this style isn't limited to only books about music, but in the last handful of years, I read two music books in this style that I love. The first was Meet Me in the Bathroom, Rebirth and Rock and Roll in New York City, 2001 to 2011, by Lizzie Goodman. And the other was Nothing But a Good Time, The Uncensored History of the 80s Hard Rock Explosion by Tom Bourgeois and Richard Beanstalk. Is there a particular style of music book that you have a fondness for over others? Um, I mean, I definitely do really love oral histories. I mean, now that you say that, I, I, one, of the, one of the formative books that I read as well uh, was is Please Kill Me, the Legs McNeil book about the punk years in New York in the 70s. And that's a classic of the oral history genre for sure. And, and I definitely always like oral histories. Um, I think right now, lately, I'm, I'm a little more interested in this sort of, um, I guess you'd call them written through narratives where, where, where the author is structuring the story, uh, beyond just the quotes from the people that they interviewed. Um, and so I tend to like that a little bit more, but oral histories are great too. And, uh, personal histories I, I enjoy as well. And, uh, even, you know, listy kind of books like, record guides and things like that are great too. I, I, there's really not one I prefer more than the other, but lately I've definitely been more into the sort of narrative, traditional narrative history kind of music books. Very good, very good. Mark, is it, is it possible to write a great artist biography without the direct involvement of the artist? Oh, well, yeah, I, I, think, I think it's 100% possible. In fact, in certain instances, I think it's actually the better idea. I think the John Lingan's Credence Queer Oral Revival book that I, I spoke with him about on my last episode is a good example. And John Fogarty had written a, auto, a very detailed autobiography. He's been interviewed millions of times. and I, I, John did reach out to him and just wasn't able to get him, but I think it, he actually benefited from not talking to him because there's enough out there from John Fogarty, and, and I think also he, John Fogarty probably would likely have tried to had a big influence on the <laughs> what happened in the book so I think it was ended up having a better distance not having talked to him still ultimately it's preferable to talk to people and John did talk to other band members so I, th I think it is hard to write an artist biography without speaking to them but I think it can be done and in certain cases it might even be the better way to go yeah I remember that conversation that you'd had with with um, John Lingan and him saying that he was afraid that the book might have been ended up too one-sided had he been mm -hmm. able to get in touch with the with uh, Mr. Fogarty. Yeah. How important is it for an author of a music book to have a background in music education? Perhaps they've uh, learned an instrument or have taken a music theory course. Is, is this important? I personally don't think it is. I, I, I can see the argument for why it would be, and I, and, you know, I have friends who think it... Uh, I've discussed this with before who think that you know having some basis in music theory or even just having experienced what it's like to try to be a musician is important, and I, and I can see why those things could definitely help. But to me, I mean, I, I, ultimately, to to write about something just 
takes a good writer skills, <laughs> research skills and ability to talk to people and ability to get stories from people and ability to structure things. There are, there are times when you have to get relatively technical and it's good, but even that kind of thing, you know, unless you're writing strictly for your musician audience, you don't necessarily want to get so deep in the weeds of music theory that someone who doesn't know it all will be confused or find it boring or whatever. So I think ultimately, in a lot of ways, it's a, it's a strong point to be a little bit of a layman when it comes to music, the technical aspects of music, because that way you're, you're better equipped to sort of explain it for someone else who is. Right on. Right on. Great answer. I, you know, I, I think, yeah, passion is so important, and that can mm-hmm. supersede uh, any kind of... Uh, personal experience in the music, for sure. Yeah, if you've got a passion, especially with nonfiction, if you're passionate about the subject matter, I think you're going to yeah. end up with something great. Again, as long as you're competent at communicating what you're looking to communicate. I agree. I agree. I mean, it's different for every case. There's certain people that you would write about or bands or artists where if you don't know your stuff technically, it's going to show. But I think that's a small portion of, of music, and a, a whole lot of music is just about your know, reaction to to the, the the emotional reactions, the the things they were trying to say artistically and aesthetically, and those in, in the end, the what notes they played or what you know what melodies they created and stuff are, are sort of those are just tools to get to where they wanted to get in terms of expression. You know, for sure, for sure. Mark, would you or have you ever read a book about a musician or a genre that you'd had no interest or knowledge of prior? Huh, that's interesting. That's a good question. Um. Nothing is coming completely to mind right now. I mean, one probably decent example of something like that is uh, uh, an upcoming episode. I talked to this uh, author, Kate Mollison, who wrote a book called Sound Within Sound uh, that's about uh, 20th century composers who haven't been as well-known or well-exposed as as she thought they should be, and I I agree with her having read the book. Uh, There's 10 different musicians, and there are a couple of them I was familiar with. A few of them I had no familiarity with at all. And, um, and it was in the classical realm, which is not my wheelhouse. I mean, I, I like some avant-garde classical music, but I don't know much about sort of more traditional classical music and what these people were playing off of. And, and that's one of the reasons why I love this book, is I thought she did a great job of making it accessible to someone like me who had no clue about these people or what, or what they had done and, and placing them in a context, but also showing why it was not a good thing that they don't get the attention that they deserve. And hopefully this her book's going to help them. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, I, I read... You know, I'd had no um, passion or interest in Sammy Hagar at all, but Tom uh-huh. Sharpling, who you and I think both enjoy, uh, had uh-huh. mentioned Sammy Hagar's memoir. I think it was called like uh-huh. Red, Red Rider or Red Rocket or something like that. And my library happened to have it, and I read it just on Sharpling's recommendation. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, do, That's do you... cool, yeah. I mean, John Worcester, who goes on Sharpling's show a lot, you know, they're, they're part of he. He's often talked about how he's so obsessed with music biographies and music stories that he'll read about any band, even if he doesn't know anything about yeah. them. And I'm kind of jealous of that. I wish I had the time to do that. I would love to read more books about bands that I you know, either don't know about or don't, don't even like, because I think a really good music book can make you interested in anything. For sure, for sure. Yeah, I, I guess similar in, in, in terms of uh, films, my buddy and I, uh, who watched watched that entire Grateful Dead uh, documentary? I think it was like that uh-huh. that three part six hour deal, and I I had no interest in the Grateful Dead, <laughs> but I was still fascinated, and I walked away impressed and with an entirely new respect for that band after That's after awesome. seeing uh, what they uh, you know what they created. 
Do you, do you have a dream author or perhaps list of authors who are still living that you would love to speak with for the Music Book Podcast, Mark? Oh, that's an interesting one, too. Um, well, there's certainly a few figures, from, especially from older books, that I'd like. There, there's a, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, but John Zwed, it's spelled S-Z-W-E-D. He wrote um, uh, a Sun Ra biography. He wrote an Alan Lomax biography. He's written a bunch of really solid really interesting biographies of different musicians and I'd love to have him on sometime. I, I don't even know if I'd be able to pick a specific book. It might be the kind of thing where I talk to him about every book he's ever written. So uh, he would be a good candidate for that. And um, Victor Bacris, who who wrote a Velvet Underground book as well as a Lou Reed and a Patti Smith book. Yeah, and a Burroughs book too. Yep, exactly. And, and a Warhol book even. Yeah, that's so, true. That's pretty yeah. prolific. Yeah. So he's a, he, I, and both of those guys are probably getting up in years, but yeah. I'm sure they're still they'd still be awesome to talk to. That, that definitely would be dreamless there. Right on, great great uh, suggestions. Uh, if you guys are listening, <laughs> get in touch with Mark. Is is there an artist or band or music genre or subgenre that you feel has yet to be fully explored in terms of a comprehensive book about them or it that you are dying for someone to write about? Absolutely. I mean, I, I always sort of have a running list in my head of those kind of things. But the one that I, for some reason, keeps coming up to me every time I, I listen to him or think about it is Archie Shep. Ah. Uh, really important figure in jazz for so many years and really tied into like the way jazz in the 60s was a, a societal force. And uh, he's still here. He's in his 80s, but I, I saw him play a couple years ago. He's still completely with it, you know. And uh, somebody has to try to do that before he passes away and, and before, you know, while they, we can still get all the stories from him. And he's, I think he's just the kind of guy that not only is his music great and he did all different types of music and it was really important that way, but he was a, a cultural figure that's, who's important. And uh, I'm, I'm just a little worried that people are going to forget that if there's not a really good definitive book about him. Mm -hmm. Mark, it's hard to turn a great book into a great movie. What, what music books do you feel have been given the best adaptation to film? Huh. That's that's a that's a really interesting one. I don't know that there's many music books that I've read that have been adapted into films. I'm trying to think of. I remember when when What's Love Got to Do with It, the Tina Turner um, film came out. Oh yeah. And um, people were talking about how, what a great adaptation that was um, in terms of. Yeah. That's, yeah. Sorry. That's go a, ahead, you, please. Yeah. I, unfortunately, I apologize. I'm drawing a blank here. I mean, there's that's certainly okay. a lot of that's a right. lot of books books that I think could be turned into... Yeah, it's like not... You know, it's. I suppose, you know, I threw the question in there if only because I was thinking of... Uh, I know that Lizzie Goodman book that I mentioned earlier right. has been made into a documentary film and that I've yet to see, but I'd like to if only because I enjoyed her book so much. And then I was yeah. thinking, what other what other books, music books, have been turned into great, great films? And uh, What's Love Got to Do With It was the first... The other one I thought of, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And... Uh, I know yeah, that the no, author... That is a, that's a good example. I mean, I guess the Johnny Cash movie was somewhat based on his yeah, autobiography. Yeah, the Johnny Cash, yeah, for which sure. Is, yeah, his autobiography is amazing, so <laughs> that's a good example. I wish, I, I hope someone does a Little Richard one at some point. That Little Richard bio oh, is incredible. Be, yeah, 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 for sure. Right on. Do you, um, do you have a favorite music book, Mark? Like, uh, above all else, the one that you, you, you love and you, you've gone back to? That's an interesting one. Um... I mean, actually, when I mentioned Please Kill Me before, I do go back to that one a lot just because it, t it has stuff from so many different people in it that I care about musically and that, that I've 
been interested in writing about myself and it's just a great reference book not only a reference book but also just a hilarious <laughs> book in terms of what everybody says in it so that's a good one um let me see i'm actually so i'm scanning my shelf here <clears throat> um i mean our band could be your life is a really good one too yeah michael, michael Azarad. Azarad book that's a great um, one yeah that's one i find myself going back to a lot just because those bands are still even a lot of them, though a lot of them aren't still together, they're just still sort of relevant to the discussion of what's happening in music today. And, sure, and there's and, so much cross-pollination know. between the bands in those books, so you can For pick, sure. up, pick up anecdotes about uh, other folks. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great choices, Mark. Thanks. Mark, what books are you reading right now? Uh, let's see. Um, well, I'm kind of juggling a bunch, <laughs> as I am often am. Um, I'm re- Richard Coloda, I think is how you spell it pronounce his name uh just came out with an albert eiler biography called holy ghost which i've i've started that um i'm trying to think uh deforest brown wrote a book called assembling a black counterculture which is about the history of techno music and and how it's got a lot of african-american roots especially in detroit uh that's a really good one really dense but really well put together um think of what else do i have up here on my shelf that i'm looking through i mean i'm rereading uh eric harvey's book who got the camera which is subtitled A History of Rap and Reality, which is sort of a, a, a cross-history of the way 90s, 80s and 90s rap was uh, almost in dialogue with reality television, like shows like Cops and, <laughs> and talk shows and things like that, and the oh. way that the, the figures back then learned to sort of manipulate the media. That sounds, like that sounds real interesting. I think I've heard really of that one before. I, I, I definitely, I don't know when that one came out, but... That sounds very familiar. I'm thinking I've heard somebody mention it. Yeah, yeah, it came out a couple of years ago, and and he'll he'll be on my show eventually for sure. Oh, very very cool. Well, that that's a a perfect segue into my next question, Mark. I was going to ask, um, you know, I'm enjoying the Music Book Podcast, and I, I know other folks are as well. Can you give listeners like myself any scoops on guests and or books the show will be covering in the coming episodes? Sure, sure. Well, there. I will be talking to Eric. I, I did talk to Kate Mollison about her classical music book, so those are a couple. Um, the, I, I recently spoke to Annie Zaleski about her Duran Duran Rio book, which is part of the 33 and a Third series. Ah. She she actually came out with a with like sort of an expanded version. It's actually bigger than the, the you know, even physically bigger than the standard 33 and a Third book. It has some extra stuff in it. And, and uh, I, I thought it's one of the best entries in the series and she's just a great writer anyway she writes so much about so many different things and she was really fun to talk to so that'll be a future episode too very cool very cool we'll look forward to those i'm glad you mentioned 33 and a third i wanted to ask if you'd be covering authors of those books so i'm glad you you brought that up and obviously absolutely you will she won't be the only one i'll definitely talk to some other people about their books in that series for sure very cool very cool mark thank you again so much for spending time with me today this has been so much fun talking with you Oh, it's been my pleasure. I love, I love talking to you. I could talk to you again about this anytime. Oh, right on. Again, the Mark's new podcast is called The Music Book Podcast. There will be a link to the show in the description of this episode. So if you haven't checked it out, please do. Uh, again, Mark Masters' upcoming book, High Bias, The Distorted History of the Cassette Tape, is uh, will be available this, hopefully this October. Yeah, from that's, U- that's, the, that's the hope, yeah. All right, from UNC Press, and we'll look forward to that again, Mark. Thank you, thank you so, so much for talking with me. Thank you very much. I've really had a good time. And with that, I am going to hand things over now to Rachel from Des Moines, and she is going to give you the chart chat. Take it away, Rachel. Thanks, Andy. 
Hello and welcome back to Rachel's Chart Chat for another week. Thanks to everyone who listened last week. I got some nice feedback from listeners such as Dave from Knoxville sharing a Ronnie Millsap story and Tavy, who had a BB King anecdote that I'm sure we'll all remember when we encounter stairs we don't want to climb. And many people, oddly enough, chimed in with their Lawrence Welk memories off of the one toke over the line Welk show cover that we discussed. Uh, finally, I'd like to give a special thanks to Jill and to Jeffrey for checking out my appearance on the Tom and Joe show for the 50th anniversary of Dark Side of the Moon. You can find that on YouTube under the it's Tom, T-H-O-M, and Joe show. For the 70s chart this week, well, we're in February 25th of 1972. And before I get started, I want to give a shout out to Ian Matthews for recording a cover of Da Do Ron Ron without changing the pronouns or the name Bill. So well done. You're cooler than most. Starting off at number 94 is a song called One Way Sunday by Mark Almond. 94 was the peak for that song. And Mark Almond are two guys. It's a, or, you know, the band is named for t- the two gentlemen, John Mark, although his real name was John Michael Burchell and Johnny Almond. They were a jazz influenced English pop group. This was off of their second LP, simply titled Mark Almond 2. And the song had been a regional hit in Boston. And I think probably due to the lyrics, maybe got a little more airplay there. And this only spent two weeks on the Hot 100. And if the name Mark Almond sounds familiar to you, stay tuned. Continuing from 1972, at number 89 is Living Without You by Manfred Mann's Earth Band. That would make it to number 69. This is the first single off of their debut album as Manfred Mann's Earth Band. They had previously been an act just called Man for Man, which was the name of a band as well as the name of a guy. And he was a keyboard player from South Africa. And I read that the Earth Band are still active, performing and touring. This one I really just chose it because I liked the intro. I thought it was pretty cool. I just love that uh, synthesizer sound throughout, which you know makes sense if your band leader is the keyboard player. At number 76 is Mr. Penguin Part 1 by a group called Lunar Funk. That made it to number 63, and Lunar Funk was The Counts, aka The Fabulous Counts, under a pseudonym. They were a soul funk group from Detroit, and the song is not on Spotify, but I had to look it up for the Penguin fans out there. And the comments on the YouTube page are actually fun for once, because it's people who basically thought they might have imagined the song, so they're very, and they remember it from 50 years ago, but they're very glad to see it online. And this one debuted on February 5th, but in December 25th of the previous year, a song debuted called Do the Funky Penguin Part 1 by Rufus Thomas. That made, that was at 58 this week, down from a peak of 44. And Rufus Thomas was born in Case, Mississippi, which is near Memphis. And he got his start in entertainment business as a master of ceremonies at a club on Beale Street. Uh, but he also had been a tap dancer, a comedian, a DJ, and a singer and a songwriter. And he became known for these kind of novelty dance records. Do the... What, you know, fill in the blank. He had a song called Do the Funky Chicken, which is a hit in 1969. He had four entries on the U.S. Top 40 altogether. I think there was a penguin dance craze in at the tail end of 71 going into 72 because in addition to Do the Funky Penguin and Mr. Penguin, I read that the Tramps had cut out a, cut a song called Penguin and the Big Apple. And you'll be pleased to know that Rufus Thomas even had a song called Rappin' Rufus in 1984. At number 31 is I Gotcha by Joe Tex. 
and that make it to number two, and it was a number one R&B hit. Joe Tex wrote the song. It was intended for King Floyd, but he recorded it first. And this was the B-side of a song called A Mother's Prayer, but then DJs were playing the flip side on that one, and it became a big hit. And I originally had selected this one mainly to shout out the Liza Minnelli version, which I also love. But then the more I read on Joe Tech's Wikipedia page, I was really glad I had read up on him. I learned that he was born Joseph Arrington Jr. in Rogers, Texas. And in 1966, he converted to Islam and changed his name to Yusuf Haziz. And I, another great highlight on his page is a section that just says rivalry with James Brown. So when you see that, you know you're in for somebody interesting. Like James Brown, he had many, many singles that he released that charted. And finally, from the 70s this week, at number six is a song called Joy by Apollo 100. And number six was the peak for that one. Apollo 100 was a British instrumental group, and this was their rendition of Johann Sebastian Bach's Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring. And just at the bottom of the page is one of those Wikipedia info boxes of all of Bach's music. And, you know, it even includes some pop songs like this. And I learned, and when you listen to this one, it pops up in many movies and just in joyful, shall we say, moments. Uh, And they had a follow-up single that was based on Mendelssohn's fourth, Second Movement. But that was the end of it for Apollo 100. Moving into the 80s, our 80s chart is from February 25th at 1989. And starting off at at number 75, we have a song called Tears Run Rings by Mark Almond. And that's Mark with a C. And this was uh, eventually go on to hit number 67. This was his first single off of his fourth solo album. It was his only U.S. Hot 100 appearance. Uh, he did have 26 charting U.K. singles, including one number one. So Mark Almond, uh, he was part of Soft Cell. That was his first band he was in. And, uh, of course, known for Tainted Love, number eight in the U.S., number one in the U.K. He was born Peter Mark Sinclair Almond. And he became a fan of Mark Bolin of T-Rex, and he bought the 45 of Ride a White Swan. And he was so influenced that he decided to be Mark with a C, just like Mark Bolin was. So that's how we came to have uh, Mark Almond with a C and Mark with a K, both in our chart picks this week. At number 63 is End of the Line by the Traveling Wilburys, and that was the peak for that one. This was the second Traveling Wilburys single. It was mainly written by George Harrison but all received credit for the songwriting. I feel like this is one you've probably almost certainly heard in TV or maybe a movie or maybe trailer. The Traveling Wilburys were a super group composed of George Harrison, Tom Petty, Roy Orbison, Jeff Lynne, and Bob Dylan. And they got started when uh, George Harrison was working with Jeff Lynne on the Cloud Nine album. And I learned that the name came from little errors or glitches in the recording and George would say, we'll bury him in the mix. So that kind of became their running joke, and that became this uh, supergroup. And the song uh, was released on Feb- or the song was released on February 11th, and it was on the charts at the same time as Roy Orbison with a solo hit, which is at number 33 this week. And that song is "You Got It." It would go on to hit number nine, and that was off of his 22nd album, "Mystery Girl," and it was completed in November of '88, just before he passed away in December. The single came out on January 3rd of 89, and then uh, the song was written by uh, Roy Orbison with his Wilburys mates, Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne, who also played on the album, and uh, was produced by Jeff Lynne. I feel like it fits in well with the other Roy Orbison songs, like some uh, acts that have been around for a long time, they would try to put out a song in the 80s, and 
just you know chasing the trends and it didn't really sound like them but i feel like this other than the you know the cleaner production it fits in with what he was doing and uh roy orbison had his first hot 100 hit in 1956 which was called ubi doobie and he's a guy that i recommend reading up on but it is his story is very sad so try to prepare yourself for that but he seems like a guy that really was very influential on other singer songwriters and bringing you know emotion into music and allowing men to be vulnerable and he has like a song literally called crying and uh, he's just a fascinating guy someone i really want to learn more about at number 29 is the song called the love in your eyes by eddie money i'll make it to number 15. that was the second single off of his seventh album called nothing to lose and so this is the follow-up to the album that had take me home tonight you know it's a huge huge hit so he had pretty solid follow-up i would say and this uh, Love in Your Eyes is one of eight top 20 hits. Possibly a lesser known Eddie Money song, but it still sounds good to me. I feel like I can remember this one from uh, back in 89. He had a really solid run, you know, from 78 to 91. Anybody that's able to bridge that, you know, starting in the 70s and dealing with the MTV era and everything, I think is, you know, well done by them. And finally from 89 this week at number 27, Just Because by Anita Baker. And that would make it to number 14. This was the second single off of her third album called Giving You the Best That I Got. And this was Anita's second R&B number one. Um, unfortunately, this is not on Spotify. The Wikipedia page has a citation for this being a wedding reception favorite. And the only thing I can think of is because it mentions it, she sings I Do. So maybe the people like tying that in. So keep an ear out for it next time you're at a wedding reception. Um, I learned that Anita Baker co-wrote two songs on the album, and she also did backing vocal arrangements uh, for a couple of the songs. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Thanks so much for listening. Back to you, Andy. Thank you, Rachel. Awesome stuff, as always. I, uh, I knew Mark Almond from Soft Cell. I had no idea there was a band or duo Mark, M-A-R-K, hyphen, almond. That's had to have caused no small amount of confusion <laughs> for either of those artists' careers. Oh my gosh, wild, wild stuff. Uh, by the way, I'm going to include a link to the Tom and Joe show uh, that Rachel appeared on for that Dark Side of the Moon special. It'll be included in the description of this episode, uh, as well as the links, obviously, for our guest today, Mark Masters. This has been episode 270 of the People Are the Enemy podcast. Our theme song is Walrus Love by Nokia Ocean. You can find that song and more at pizzapuppies.bandcamp.com. My name is Andy Mascola. You can purchase my novels via Amazon and other online book retailers in both paperback and ebook formats for as little as $1.99. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you, Mark Masters. Thank you, Rachel from Des Moines. We love you. Peace.